From the US to Europe, an international podcast breaking down structured credit one tranche at a time. Welcome to the last tranche, Credit Flux's bi-monthly podcast discussing CLOs and all things structured credit. I am your host and reporter with Credit Flux, Hugh Minch. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Last Tranche. My name is Hugh Minch and I'm a reporter with Credit Flux and today I'm joined by Steve Ketchum, founder and CEO of Soundpoint Capital Management. Steve, thanks for being here. Hugh, thanks very much for having me. This is our first podcast of the year 2021. Uh, There's still a pandemic going on, possibly a 10% unemployment rate according to Jerome Powell. Uh, Millions of people still work in phone for nearly a year now. Um, and yet everything is up. Uh, Steve, what's going on? That's a, a great question. And look, I think there are a whole host of things um, that are going on. And as relates to the question about why are the markets frothy and just to maybe to put some definition around it um, from a credit standpoint, and that's that's the world in which we live in, um, spreads on high yield bonds and leveraged loans are at all time tights. Um, when we look over at the equity market, multiples, are at uh, what we'd think about as nosebleed levels. A lot of that has to do with the stimulus. We can talk about that in a little more detail later. And um, some of it has to do with the enthusiasm of the vaccine and notwithstanding the fact that I think we've bungled uh, a little bit the logistics of, of getting needles in people's arms. Certainly the companies that have created these these wonder vaccines have done a spectacular job. So I think it's really a combination of both of those things. Looking back at 2020, because it was a year in the markets, unlike any any previously, uh, what do you, what are your big takeaways? What have what have you learned um, as a result of how the credit markets uh, dealt with all that volatility? I guess I'd have to ask you whether you want the two-hour version uh, of the answer or the one-minute version. Uh, I'm I'm presuming you want the one-minute version. Um, and so as I think about it, and I can't think of a, I've been in credit for 30 years, I can't think of another year, including 2008, where there were more opportunities to learn um, and more takeaways than we had in 2020. And, and maybe if I, I distill it down and give you the Reader's Digest uh, version, if you will, um, I think the most important thing that we all learned, and when I say we, not just folks at Soundpoint, not just folks in the credit space, but um, people across uh, every asset class is that the consensus is often wrong. And to give you an example, uh, in February, when COVID was just becoming a thing, we were we were aware of what happened. It's, it felt like it was generally pretty far away uh, in Wuhan, China. Uh, the, con- the consensus here was um, COVID would not impact the U.S., probably would would be a blip in our capital markets. And one of the reasons that that was a consensus, of course, is that over the past couple of decades, there have been uh, things like SARS and MERS and Zika, which had the potential to be a worldwide pandemic, but certainly never made it to our shores. And so that we, we, we looked at our historical experience and that was a consensus. And there were a few exceptions, but most most investors um, adhere to that consensus. But just a couple of short months later, end of March, early April, um, th- when, when it was clear that the consensus was wrong and that COVID was really a thing that not only affected the capital markets, but would come to affect uh, a lot of us in a very personal way, the consensus was there is absolutely no chance that we'll have a V-shaped recovery, recovery like the one we experienced uh, after the 2008 Great Recession. 
And that was born out of the concept that the pandemic affected different industries in a very different way. So uh, the the cruise line industry, the airline industry, the restaurant industry uh, expected to have a very different shape recovery than than other areas. And of course, there were companies like Amazon and Apple and, and Google that are expected to to benefit. In retrospect, both in terms in economic terms and in capital markets terms, it feels like indeed we did have a V-shaped recovery. Uh, I'd cite as a great example. Carnival Cruise Lines was able to do a bond deal uh, yesterday uh, that was priced inside of 6%. So if that's not an indication that we've had a V-shaped recovery, then then I can't uh, think of a, a, another example. So that's number one. Number two, I think we all learned that risk management is of paramount importance. We, we were fortunate. We came into 2020 having de-risked because not, not that we had any concept that there'd be a pandemic. Um, but we were concerned that we might be in the later stages of a credit cycle, and we felt that we should be underweight names that were in the ENP industry and the retail industry and other cyclical type names. And and that, in retrospect, that served us quite well. Uh, and then perhaps finally, as it relates to a topic that is certainly relevant to um, credit flex and, and what you all do, uh, I think we all learned, again, that CLOs can withstand massive amounts of disruption and volatility much like uh, we did in 2008 and 2009. And, and the question is why? Um, the answer is that we borrow long and we lend short. And, and, uh, and we, we really have, CLOs really have fortress type capital structures that, that are unimpeded in particular by short-term mark-to-market disruptions um, uh, in the capital markets. So th- those, as I think about the, the the big takeaways, the big learning experiences for us, those are the things that I think about. I'll come back to CLOs um, a little later on in our discussion, but let's stick with the macro picture just for now. There's a 1.9 trillion COVID relief bill working its way through Congress. It's expected to pass into law um, in early March. Uh, add that to the 9 billion, 900 billion in December, um, of course, putting party politics to one side, could I get your thoughts on this from a from a policy perspective? So you're not going to allow me to politicize my answer. I have to I have to give you a. <laughs> <laughs> well, feel no, free no, if you no. want. Um, look, I think maybe the best way to approach that question, and it's a great question, um, is to paraphrase um, Larry Summers. He, Larry wrote a great article in the Washington Post. I think it was on February 4th, and he really distilled in, in a very uh, in a very understandable way the stimulus um, package of 2020 and 2021 versus what we did, what, what the Obama administration did in 2009. And, and my takeaways from that article were as follows. So in 2009, the stimulus package um, that we put forth um, created a subsidy of, call it 40 to 50% of the shortfall between the estimated economic output GDP of the United States and what actually happened as a result of the this this disruption that was caused by the mortgage crisis in 2008. So let, let's just let's put a pin let's just say 50% just to put a pin in that. In 2020, the stimulus package that that the Trump administration put together and and one one thing I would say and, and aside from politics, I think most people uh, in uh, in our business felt that the stimulus was needed. Uh, I agree with that. Um, 
but just to compare and contrast the the stimulus that we put in place last year subsidized and these are these are Larry's numbers not mine sub subsidized about 60% of the shortfall between actual and estimated output um so a, a little bit a little bit of a bigger stimulus on a relative basis compared to 2009 now you mentioned that there's a stimulus package work winding its way uh, through uh, Congress, and whether it ends up being 1.9 trillion or 1.5 or 1.2 trillion, it it feels certainly uh, that it will be greater than 1 trillion. But in the call it the midpoint of, of the range, call it 1.5 or 1.6 trillion, that will end up being multiples, call it two or 250 or 300 percent of the remaining shortfall. And so it's a very different, it's a very different quantum of, of stimulus on a relative basis than we had in 2009. And going back to the early question that you asked, I think that's one of the reasons that the markets uh, are uh, on fire as, as measured by credit spreads or measured by multiples in the equity markets. Given everything you just said, what are you know the pros and cons of either doing a bigger stimulus package or on the other hand, what's, what's, the, what's the risk involved here? Well, look, you know, and, and again, I, I not to politicize it. Larry Summers likes bigger, likes the concept of a bigger stimulus package. He's a phenomenal economist, so he understands the risks, as do I. I think when I think about the unintended consequences or the manifestation of of a bigger stimulus package relative to what we did in 2009, is um, is on a in an in the near term, uh, there is. There's a non-zero probability that it has um, it puts upward pressure on inflation, and so inflation isn't an awful thing. Hyperinflation is an awful thing, and we haven't seen hyperinflation since the, the 70s. And so, with all this liquidity, with all this stimulus, uh, with the savings rate that the the amount of capital that households have to spend now, thanks in large part to the stimulus, that has that creates upward risk of inflation which creates upward risk uh, in terms of interest rates, and that could have an impact on uh, all the frothiness in, in the market that we're having. So that's something that as we, as we think about our various portfolios, it's something that weighs on us and it's something that we, that we look to, that's a risk we look to ameliorate. So that's, that's one thing. And I think further down the road, um, although it, it certainly could be sooner rather than, than later, the other, manifestation is at some point um, this bill will come due right so we we are uh, we're creating trillions and trillions of dollars of liquidity at some point in theory uh, somebody has to pay for that and joe biden was very vocal about his objectives in terms of taxes uh, he stated that he'd like to see the corporate tax move from 21% to 28%, uh, which I think would would create a negative impact on both the equity markets and the credit markets because it'd be less free cash flow. Uh, the issuers that we cover, uh, he, he has an objective uh, potentially of uh, turning uh, or, or taxing capital gains at an ordinary income rate, which I think would also have a negative impact uh, on the equity markets, certainly for obvious reasons. Um, and I think there is a general expectation that at some point there'll be some form of a wealth tax. But at the end of the day, there, there are trillions of dollars uh, to be paid back. And so that's those are, to, to the extent that that happens sooner rather than later, my, my instinct is that that would have a negative impact on the capital markets at large. 
So another argument, though, that I keep hearing is that isn't COVID kind of an, an inherently deflationary kind of crisis, especially if you compare it to 2008, 2009? I mean, especially as regards certain industry sectors. What's your view? Does that does that matter at all? Well, it, well, it does, but it, it, but as you know, the market you know the market is forward thinking, and it's our job to look around the corner. And and again, part and parcel of the likelihood of the two risks that I mentioned, uh, and in particular inflation, will be driven by um, when we have herd immunity. So, and and you know what goes into that obviously is. Um, are there mutations of the disease that the vaccine doesn't address? Does that, you know, does that put off the the herd immunity that we have in the United States and the rest of the world until at some point next year? That that's really the question, and that and that is, you know, that that is a known unknown. It's it's difficult to answer. I, I will say this: the amount of liquidity and cash that the average household has to spend now is close to all-time highs, and so I believe that there's a spring-loaded effect. When, when people do feel safe, when, when, when we go back to some semblance of normal, and we're certainly not there, and it doesn't feel like we're particularly close to being there, um, th but there really could be that, that sort of spring-loaded effect once uh, the economy reopens because, you know, because our, uh, our medical experts tell us it's safe to go back and eat in restaurants and, and you know, be in, in group gatherings again. Yeah, I'm trying to think anecdotally about um, what, what, you know, what I'm hearing from different people I know about how, how quickly they're going to actually go back to normal or otherwise. Um, but just in terms of um, the overall macro picture that you've just described, um, how does that relate to the credit markets um, specifically? Um, what, what does it all mean? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's, and there's a lot to unpack. Um, and so, but let, let's, maybe we, I talked a little bit about what the impact of higher taxes would be on, on the market, which, which, as I mentioned, I, I think would be, uh, would be an impairment. Let's, let's focus on inflation for a moment. And look, it's not our base case that we'll have hyperinflation, but it's our job as investors to think about that as a tail risk. And it does feel um, and th this is a sort of an inconsensus view. It does feel like there will be, there's more likely to be upward pressure on inflation over the next year to two years than downward pressure. Uh, and if that's true, and we, we've seen interest rates um, in the form of the 10-year treasury, for example, uh, move up, frankly, quite a bit over the, over the last few months in part because of stimulus, in part because of the new administration uh, and their expected policies, in, in part because there, there are vaccines that seem to have high e efficacy. Uh, and so if that's correct, and we, we're, we're in a world where uh, inflation moves higher or e even back to what we would consider normal, and we've enjoyed interest rates that have been, um, that have been quite a bit lower than historical, so if we move into a more normalized uh, environment for inflation and interest rates, that does have implications for the credit market. So when I think about fixed income, I think about um, the high yield market, for example, where, where rates are fixed, uh, as, as most of your readers or viewers or listeners know, there's an inverse relationship between rising rates and the prices of 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 any fixed rate bond, high yield, investment grade, treasuries, municipals, and and 
when I look at where the average high yield bond is trading now, and the last time I looked, which was a couple of days ago, the index was trading at 4.03%. So if the 10-year treasury moves up 50 or 100 basis points over the next year to two years, um, that has huge implications for pricing. When I think about our the, port, the portion of our portfolio that is fixed income, I, I believe that over the next year to two years, duration risk or interest rate risk is a much bigger um, risk than credit risk. And that's that's unusual because duration has been our friend for the past 35 years. Interest rates, um, by and large, have been coming down consistently over 35 years with, with some exceptions. It, it does, it bears pointing out that floating rate debt and, and loans and, and CLO tranches are floating rate in nature. They're, they're, they reset every month or three months based on a spread over LIBOR um, are an interesting hedge against inflation inflation or rising interest rates. So with that in mind, um, it, it sounds like you're saying CLOs uh, p- appear to be, you know, at least all else being equal, they appear to be um, well positioned to take advantage of the recovery. Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? It is. And, and, and maybe just to elaborate a little bit. One of the, we talked a little bit about um, the the fortress capital structures and the fact that, that CLOs over the past 12 or 13 years have been tested in a fairly significant way, first in 2008, 2009, and then more recently in 2020. Uh, and the returns and and the the you know the the, the capital structures have emerged. Uh, I won't say unscathed, but but the performance has been um, outstanding. And so now that the now that the economy and the capital markets have recovered, and again let let's keep with the theme that that, that maybe we'll see more inflation and and some upward pressure on, on, on interest rates. The interesting aspect around CLOs in this sort of environment uh, are that there's perfect symmetry between the collateral, meaning the loans that sit in tie in, inside of these capital structures um, and the liabilities, meaning the, the bonds that when we form, when Soundpoint or one of our competitors forms a brand new CLO and we go out and create a capital structure and we have AAA bonds and AA bonds and single A bonds and so forth down the cap stack, both the liabilities and the assets are floating rate in nature. So to the extent that LIBOR, which is which is in, in theory, uh, uh, you know, a, a metric that will be replaced by something else. But for now, we still use use L, um, you know, in our uh, in our spreads. If LIBOR moves up, then both our assets and liabilities move up. So there's perfect symmetry. So a CLO, um, among other protections. Um, like the long live live nature of uh, you know of uh, of the capital structures that we put in place, the the other advantage, especially in this environment, is is the notion that both both assets and liabilities move in lockstep if interest rates move up. So I've got a few more questions about uh, CLOs that I'll come to in a minute, but before we do that, could you just give us a brief overview of uh, Soundpoint, how how the how it's structured and and um, what kind of asset classes you're investing in at the moment? Yeah, um, I'm delighted to, to do that. And maybe just a, a quick a quick uh, bit of history. We started our business in 2009 um, after the last crisis. Uh, so uh, you know, and we do subscribe to the the concept that it's better, uh, often better to be lucky than good. We, you know, we work hard to uh, to be good investors, but we've been we were fortunate to start. 
uh, our business at a great time and also fortunate to have two uh, partners uh, that own equity in our business and that have been very strategic, Stone Point Capital, a, a private equity firm that focuses on, on the financial services space, and then Dial, uh, which is part of Newberger Berman, who came in as a partner three or four years ago. Um, today, we have about $23 billion of assets under management. And as I think about the business, we really have four prongs. We have um, we have a CLO and performing credit business. That's a very important part of our business. We have an opportunistic credit business, which is is comprised of hedge funds, long short credit funds, and distress funds, and and also funds that are set up uh, drawdown style private credit type vehicles, mostly to to focus uh, on distressed and stressed capital structures. Um, we've got a structured credit investing business that invests really in, in two uh, asset classes. One are CLOs, so we invest in the CLO equity and mezzanine of non-sound point vehicles, the, the you know, other managers that do what we do in CLOs. And then embedded in that third prong, the structured credit investing business is a marketplace uh, lending business. So we we buy um, packages of loans from Lending Tree and Lending Club and Square and, and other things like that. The, the the that business, the peer-to-peer -peer lending business, is in in its nascent stage, but it is a massive business and and very interesting. Performed quite well in 2020, I think, thanks in part to subsidies. And then number four, we've got a commercial real estate credit business where we uh, originate and structure first mortgages against uh, commercial uh, commercial properties office buildings and and hotels etc and, and and obviously that's a that's an interesting business with uh, with an interesting and and certainly changing future but all these prongs are are very complementary we work hard to to sort of um, maximize the synergies uh, among those four different businesses um, and so within CLOs I know that a big discussion you're going through most of last year was um, about CLOs and how they how they can um, get involved in workout situations, holding equity equity securities, etc. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of your experiences in those kind of scenarios and how the market broadly is is dealing with this issue of you know aggressive competition from other kinds of fund structures? Look, I I think CLO managers and and, and look, not everybody. Not every CLO manager has a bolted-on distressed business like we do. M many do, but but many don't. Uh, we certainly um, one of the synergies that we find in our, in our own firm is the fact that we've got folks who have spent their entire career sitting on steering committees and doing workouts. And to the extent that we uh, end up in a situation in our CLO business where we have to sit on a steering committee or 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 have to have to work a company through chapter 11 we've got experts to do that um and and our distressed business sources um a great many ideas from our clo business it's, it's a little bit of a secret weapon in terms of identifying interesting things to do i think one of the one of the topics for 2020 because after many many years of a benign default environment, except perhaps in 2015 in the in the energy sector, um, there was a lot more to do on, on the bankruptcy side as relates to leveraged loans, given given what we went through um, last year. One of the 
one of the big topics that, that you all have covered and others uh, others have covered is um, what happens you know in the back room on on steering committees and you know since the dawn of time or at least since the dawn of distressed investing uh, there's certainly been contentious uh, debates and negotiations between different classes of lenders so uh, senior secured lenders versus senior unsecured lenders versus equity. Uh, everybody is fighting for some scraps uh, uh, of the company that is filing for Chapter 11 and, and then at some point emerging from bankruptcy. I think there's a, a more recent phenomenon, which is something that, that I find unsettling. And, you know, it's we we call it there, there are a number of different names. We, we tend to refer to it as lender to lender violence. And and we don't love that, and 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 that really characterizes a scenario where where somebody that is sitting on, for example, the senior secured steering committee. In other words, they have somehow, some way, gotten into become a lender. They they own some percentage of the first lien securities, the the loans that are at the top of the capital stack stack of a company that's going through a bankruptcy, end up stepping away from the rest of the group and either trying to do a priming transaction or in many cases that we saw last year trying to create a dilutive transaction by for example um, uh, forcing the managed te management team or encouraging the man management team to raise money not in the form of a dip financing or uh, something that a clo investor can by virtue of its charter invest in but but doing it in the form of equity and the reason that it tends to be done that way is because hedge funds or distress funds that are not in the CLO business are aware that by charter, CLO investors, while they can hold equity that has been flushed, that, that has been created out of, a, uh, out of an exchange from the loan that they once owned, they cannot invest, at least up, up until now, they haven't been able to invest in brand new equity. And so that creates a dilutive transaction uh, and it really, in my, from my perspective, it is is bad form because at the end of the day, I think it's important that that people who are in the same class, who sit on the same steering committee, work as partners. And 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 the reality is, um, people have long memories. This is a, a business that is, you know, the the, the overall U.S. leveraged loan business is now a 1.3 trillion dollar asset class. And so many of us who sit on steering committees are involved in stressed or distressed uh, situations. Uh, we work together time and time again. So um, it, it's not something that, that is, uh, I think, is good for the business. It's, it's if I were an LP in a hedge fund that has built a reputation of doing these coercive type transactions, the lender to lender uh, violent type transactions, I'd be concerned because ultimately um, their ability to, to claw their way into a steering committee in the future with with CLO managers who have been impaired in, in previous transactions, I, th I think that has negative implications for the future of, of their business. Uh, so let's uh, touch on the stressed and distressed investor, investing environment because you know, a huge amount of of um, a huge amount of fundraising took place in that in, in that sector in 2020. Um, you mentioned also uh, Carnival Cruise Lines and their and their and their bond issue that happened this week. Um, what are all those um, What are all those distressed investors going to do with the with the money they've raised? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And look, that, that falls under the column heading of, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, um, it, it, you know, we were, we were quite fortunate. And as, as, as I said, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. We were fortunate to, to have launched a distressed credit fund in, in, in a drawdown form, in a private equity style form uh, on January 1st of last year. So our timing could not have been better. And obviously, the environment for most of last year was quite good. And, and as you mentioned, there were a number of other competitors who uh, raised similar type funds. It was hard not to do well uh, in 2020 if you had uh, fresh powder to invest in distressed. But if you if you flash forward to today, it would be a little bit disingenuous for me to tell you that that the environment was every bit as robust or as easy. Uh, because it's not, and, and the capital markets has bailed out uh, a number of companies that you, that you would have otherwise thought would be struggling and, and, and maybe having to, to uh, file Chapter 11 and, and you know and and work work through that process. But but the reality is because the loan market and the high yield bond market are so large in, in you know in total it's sort of two and a half trillion to three trillion dollars. It's dramatically bigger than it was, um, you know, five or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So the good news is that even if five or six or 7% of that overall market uh, is not able to uh, finance themselves and kick the can down the road, like, like some of the, the, the names that we, that we've you know, talked about in the past, um, there's still hundreds of billions of dollars of things to do. So uh, while there isn't as much low hanging fruit uh, as there might've been in the middle of last year, there's still plenty to do where, where there's posterior equity that's trading at very attractive levels vis-a-vis -vis the public markets. There continue to be companies um, that file, even though I expect the default rate in 2021 to be quite a bit lower than 2020. Um, and again, it really is the law of large numbers. Um, you know, we you know we exist in an environment that is massive. And frankly, as I think about the future of the CLO business or the distressed investment business, I look at the the trillions of dollars of capital that private equity firms have to invest uh, in in targets where where they will require leverage either in the form of loans or bonds or both. Uh, and it means that that our business, um, w whether it's performing credit or distressed credit will continue to uh, will continue to grow as well. So, uh, just a, a final thing I want to touch on before before I before we have to sadly um, end is, you know, when when things go back to normal, do you think that means um, you know post COVID? Does that mean back to before, or will the business world be different somehow? What's your What's your view on that? Because I think it's really important for you know not just credit investors but for all investors. Well, if you promise not to tell anybody uh, that's employed at Soundpoint, um, you know we we were we are close to signing um, a lease for a satellite office uh, in in Florida, which and, and we're certainly not the first hedge fund or asset manager or CLO manager to do do that. And I think that you know those of us who run firms have to have to be thoughtful about the lessons that we've learned around. Uh, around work from home, and 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 I'm and I think there is a middle ground, and it's not. Uh, and we are in a high touch business where being in the same room, bumping bumping into each other at the water cooler is something that creates value for our investors, and and we don't want to stop that. 
but I do think that creating um, a, a work-life balance for people and, and making sure that they are as productive as they possibly can be is the way of the future and, and Zoom and and Microsoft Teams and, and WebEx have advanced that dramatically. We've never had the opportunity to, to really, until 2020, to prove that we can successfully operate in a remote environment. So I do think there's um, there will be a balance where, uh, where some people have uh, the ability to work uh, at least some part of the week from home um, with a proper technology. I, th I do think it's important to have people, as I mentioned earlier, um, congregate in a workplace. That's how cultures are created and maintained. I do think uh, in our world, not just SoundPoint, but folks that do what we do, will end up having more satellite offices. Where I'm, I'm talking to you from our office in Midtown Manhattan, where we have a, you know, where we did a soft reopening. We have a skeleton crew here. We haven't, we haven't forced, of course, forced anybody to come back to work. But I can see a future where we have a small office in Connecticut, near where some of our senior employees are, a, a, a satellite office in New Jersey, uh, and and something in Florida to give people the flexibility um, to to be able to operate in an efficient way, but create some more balance in their life. But I would say the corollary to that is, um, I do think going forward, there'll be a, it'll be a differentiator. If uh, th there are scenarios where perhaps we don't need to get on planes to go see an investor who is 3000 miles away and it's somebody that we've known for five years and there's an RFP and a meeting that will last all of 45 minutes, maybe we can do that over Zoom or Teams. But in terms of cultivating new investors and building a business and building relationships, there is no substitute for getting on a plane and being in a room with somebody, of course, when we're, you know, when we're back to normal um, uh, after the pandemic. And I think to the, the, I think there's risk in folks that do what we do that decide that they don't need to go uh, see people in person. I don't think there will ever be any substitute uh, to sitting down over dinner or in a room or uh, over a cup of coffee um, and developing relationships. So, the, so the, that is, as I think about the future of our business, both on the investor side and, um, and the internal side, those are some of our thoughts. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really interesting to hear all your thoughts on, on all the different, um, different sides of the business and all the different asset classes in credit. So thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks, Hugh. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Last Tranche. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Credit Flux and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share our content.